Journalists experiment with new storytelling formats. Podcast series have emerged as an engrossing platform for true crime stories. This session delves into what it is about true crime stories that's just so compelling. From technical details like getting your voice, tone and background noises just right to how to treat the people you're reporting on with respect. I'm Claire Fletcher at the Walkley Foundation and you're listening to a special edition of Walkley Talks. Conversations from Storyology, our 2018 journalism festival in Brisbane. This Storyology podcast is brought to you in partnership with Bond University. The topic today is killer stories. I love a headline with the word killer in it. True crime and podcasts. And it's so fantastically appropriate that we are at the barracks, which of course for many decades was the uh, training centre for Queensland Police. And so many fabulous villains went through this precinct. Our panellists today are the multi-Walkley Award-winning journalist Rachel Brown and Hedley Thomas. Now, broadcast journalist Rachel Brown began her career in 2002 with the ABC. She was the National Broadcaster's Europe correspondent from 2010 to 2013. She won her first Walkley Award for Best Radio Current Affairs Report in 2008 and followed that one up last year with the extraordinary podcast Trace. Uh, which she created, investigated, and hosted. Trace was uh, the ABC's first true crime podcast, and Rachel lives in Melbourne. Welcome, Rachel. And, of course, Hedley Thomas is the national chief correspondent for The Australian and has won five Walkley Awards, including the 2007 Gold Walkley for his reporting on the infamous Dr. Hanif case. I think we all remember that. Um, Headley has reported from around the world during his extraordinary career and spent six years on the South China Morning Post. Uh, his latest project is the record-breaking true crime podcast, The Teacher's Pet. Um, Rachel first, but both of you, just to give us a thumbnail sketch of the stories of Trace and The Teacher's Pet, the actual narrative, and how you first came to the stories of Maria James and Lynn Dawson. With Maria James, she was a 38-year-old woman who was stabbed in the back of her Melbourne bookshop and she left behind uh, two boys, a 13-year-old and an 11-year-old. So I came upon this story. My One of my best mates and, and colleagues, Kerry Ritchie, said to me, an electrician's come forward with explosive evidence about a priest who was seen covered in blood shortly after the murder. And so, of course, that got my spidey senses going because I thought, well, why... I know that priest has been ruled out, so I couldn't reconcile those two things. And so at the start of 2016, I was thinking about investigating that. And I'd also recently read an article in The Guardian about how serial will never happen in Australia because of access to documents um, and police records are so restrictive. And I read it and I thought, oh, shit. They're right, because I loved serial and I wanted to see an Australian serial. Um, so I had all that marinating in my brain and then one morning at 4am I woke up and I thought, that's it, a cold case podcast because hopefully, hopefully, it didn't play out this way, um, police would welcome the extra pair of hands and the family would, would appreciate revived interest in their mum's case. So I approached Mark James for his permission um, I've said this ad nauseum, so apologies if you've heard me say this before, but a lot of true crime um, treats tragedies like a spectator sport and that's not what I'm about. So had Mark James said no, I wouldn't have done it. Um, he very graciously said yes and said, you know, I see this as 
as my last chance, really, for answers. Um, no pressure. Um, and then I approached Ron Idles, who is the beautiful police officer who first investigated this case. Same deal with him. I said, do you think this is a good idea? Um, he said yes. And so those two men were the barometer of whether I should do it. Um, then I went to Vic Pole and spoke to its assistant commissioner and got his blessing as well. Um, so that's a really rough background about how Trace came into being. And um, just to um, fill in the gaps, your, your, your murder, if I may say that, uh, was 1980 and Lynn Dawson's disappearance was 1982. Yeah, that's right. Um, so for me, um, the teacher's pet uh, takes its, um, uh, I guess, origins from a, a story I did back in uh, 2001 when I was a journalist at the Korea Mail. And uh, I'd read an article, a very brief article, about what was then um, an ongoing and just completed inquest in Sydney into the, the disappearance of this woman, Lynn Dawson. And um, the article grabbed my attention. I persuaded the features editor to let me go to Sydney and try and put together a, a weekend feature because there just seemed to be so many unusual elements to this story. Um, this was a woman who, in 2001, her, her disappearance was being investigated, but she'd actually disappeared back in 1982. So she'd been missing already for 19 years. And it seemed that there had been this quite late um, uh, concern for the fact that she may have met with foul play, even though she'd been missing all those years. Uh, her, her husband, when she went missing, was this um, uh, very charismatic but uh, um, severely narcissistic uh, rugby league player, uh, newly retired. He was a school teacher on the northern beaches of Sydney. And he'd been having... Um, a pretty intense sexual relationship with uh, one of his students, Joanne Curtis, since late 1980 when she was in year 11. And uh, what happened when, as I read the, the files in the um, Northern Beaches Police Station in 2001, I was just getting um, quite moved by the whole story because I was reading through witness statements and the brief of evidence and it was describing how... Um, uh, Lynn's daughters, who she doted on, age four and two, had been raised believing their mother had just walked out on them. Um, she was there one minute, gone the next, and she'd been this most doting mother who had tried for years to have children. And uh, the uh, the student um, lover of her husband had moved in just two days later and then um, even started wearing Lynn's clothes, uh, would wear her rings, um, and they would be married... And the children would start calling um, Joanne mum. And the story just seems so cruel um, on, on many levels. The lack of interest in, in Lynn, in her disappearance, the failure of police. Um, her family, her, her sister and two brothers and her parents loved her dearly. But there were lapses uh, in terms of um, what happened because I think... Her family believed their, their son-in-law, brother-in-law, Chris Dawson, that she had just up and left and never talked to any of them ever again. And um, uh, she's still missing. There is no body. Um, and I approached the story late last year thinking this could be um, a powerful podcast, particularly if I could try and find new evidence. And I did approach it. And I've tried to be upfront with listeners about this in the first episode um, with the view that the two coroners who ran those inquests 
were actually right in finding that he murdered his wife. So, you know, most journalists start an endeavour like this um, saying, oh, no, I'm completely open-minded. I don't have a view one way or the other. I've started this believing that the, the judicial system, insofar as the coroners are concerned, made the right findings. Um, there still has been no prosecution, so uh, I've tried to um, investigate this from the perspective of seeing whether there's new evidence, new witnesses that might make a difference, and that's where it's going. Um, can you please tell me why uh, or how you arrived at the podcast as the platform for your investigations? I mean, Headley, your newspapers and magazines primarily through your career. Um, Rachel, of course, with radio, it seems a bit more logical, but why the podcast? Um, I, given the material that I knew I was going to be dealing with, um, I, I knew about Adam's sexual assault before I started this podcast, or at least one of the incidents. And so, in this kind of daily churn, this fast churn in daily news, I didn't want to have it as a one TV news story or one radio news story that wouldn't have done this justice. And I just, I've listened to a lot of podcasts and I just think it's the most beautiful medium and intimate and delicate to tease out really important stories. And you can create that beautiful theatre of the mind and it, it allowed me the bonus of anonymity for some people, um, victims of sexual abuse, survivors I should say, um, who might want anonymity and Adam, you know, Adam has cerebral palsy and Tourette's. And so the idea of having a camera up in his grill wouldn't have worked. And so I could just leave my recorder in front of him. And that was a very long interview. I can talk about that a bit more later. Um, that went for two and a half hours to get five minutes of usable audio. But it, we still, I maintain that intimacy because he kind of forgot that the recorder was there. Um, had to turn it off every now and then and we'd talk about trivial things like footy, um, you know, because it got too hard. But I just think it was to tell the story that I wanted to tell. Um, it was just the most perfect medium and crucial for the interactivity that I wanted. Um, I didn't want to do this if it was rehashing stuff that's already out there. So I saw this as a way of tapping into the community and we got the most phenomenal community engagement because of that. Um, I also had a very elaborate marketing plan whereby I would match episodes with TV, radio, um, online stories and social media. And I'd be on programs internally on the ABC, externally, um, Channel 10, Gold 104, Kiss Radio to give people other doors into the podcast because I know my, some, most of my family are like, oh, what's a podcast and how do you listen to a podcast? And so I didn't want my story and the boys' story to be lost because people didn't understand the, that kind of medium. So we offered people a lot of doors into the podcast, which allowed the interactivity. Um, and because I'd tapped into diverse community grapevines, um, the response was fast and furious and and Headley will be able to talk about this too, um, I definitely think this is the future in terms of compelling investigative storytelling um, and that fosters the community engagement that we need um, to see breakthroughs in cases like this. And I do feel, and I know we have a common enemy in a Melbourne Uni law professor who doesn't believe that this is an appropriate forum, but I just see that if families are let down by the judiciary, by police forces... I'm biased, but I can't think of a better forum. 
to investigate cases like this? Yeah, I, I didn't know what the forum and the medium would entail. Um, for me, it was a um, combination of factors. I'd heard a lot about podcasting, but I hadn't done any. Um, I thought that I would have a much you know, better appearance for audio than TV. And, and I um, was also at a bit of a crossroads. My father passed away uh, in March last year and I took um, several months off. Um, wasn't really sure what I was going to do in journalism when I came back to it, got back to my desk and, you know, I was sort of struggling to get motivated with um, the same kinds of stories I've been doing for many years. It just seemed a bit one-dimensional. And then the challenge of doing something called podcasting and an investigative series um, on a story that had gripped me 17 years ago uh, started to, to take shape. And I remember uh, the afternoon that um, I decided with a sort of a penny-dropping moment that I would tackle this story. Um, and I, uh, I just thought, that's it. I remember so well, you know... Um, the impact that the story had on me in 2001 and I thought if I could reconstruct the story, try and find the people who um, were key witnesses at the time, find new ones, um, talk to the police, some still serving um, and but mostly retired, try and talk to Chris Dawson and his um, twin brother Paul about about uh, their, their actions and their conduct, then you know, it might really go somewhere. And uh, that was... Um, it really kicked off in probably early November last year. I remember it was just around the Melbourne Cup time and I backed the winner of the Melbourne Cup, so it was a good omen. <laughs> but um, uh, so far I've found, like Rachel, that it is the most engaging um, form of journalism I've actually done in more than 30 years. Um, the, the, uh, the emails and the contacts that I receive from members of the public, but also people who have been... Um, friends, um, colleagues, uh, football teammates of some of the key players in this story. It's phenomenal and it's just ongoing every day in my inbox. Dozens of new emails, some of them leads on, on potential evidence um, and uh, that's just been um, um, evidence to me of the power of podcasting. If you identify a story that people can be captured by and that they think is important and that's really relevant. You've got to, I think, be very careful in what you select as your story and then demonstrate your own integrity and authenticity in the narration and in the telling of that story and in your research. Um, you know, I think you've got um, you know, so much scope and... and you know, we're at episode 11. Um, I think there's probably at least another three, so uh, it's, it's going to take me out for pretty much the year. <laughs> but, but credit to newspapers too, because you might be surprised to learn that's how I got Trace over the line, um, because Barrowville had come out in The Australian um, by Dan Box, and The Age had done Phoebe's Fall, and I was lobbying hard for Trace um, and said, newspapers are beating us. You know, we're supposed to be the audio experts. So credit to papers in leading the way in podcasting in Australia. I've become obsessed with um, the teacher's pet at the moment. In fact, I hide in my car in the car park at work so I can listen to the latest episode. It's true. Uh, and last night, Headley picked me up and um, brought me to an event here that we had last night. And he was on the phone. And it took about 30 seconds to realise that he was on the phone to Greg who is the brother of Lynn Dawson. And I was like, I, was, I gasped. Because I thought, that's Greg. 
but then it occurred to me, of course, brought me down to earth that this was the brother of a woman that had been missing since 1982. Uh, so I want to ask you about your relationship with the families, the importance of that. Um, and in both podcasts, there, there is a demonstrable um, sh- showing of, of support and care for the families and their pursuit of justice. So tell us about the fa- familial relationships that came, have come from the podcasts. Yeah, I met uh, Greg Sims, Lynn's uh, younger brother, uh, for the first time in November, and he lives near Newcastle. And I'd met Lynn's sister, Pat, in 2001, and we'd stayed in touch by email and telephone over the years, and Greg would occasionally send me emails as well. But I met him face-to-face for the first time when I first started this process, and it was so important to demonstrate to him that you know, I was um, genuine in this in this process, and that it was going to potentially deliver an outcome that they've waited on for so long. They still haven't seen any justice. They've been let down so badly, but it was difficult because, you know, I couldn't demonstrate that I knew anything about audio or podcasting, and they didn't know what a podcast really was. Um, now they're completely addicted to it, and they're downloading and telling me what the latest <laughs> true crime <laughs> series are that they're listening to, but. Um, we we um, spent hours talking about the possibilities and I explained how I would need their full cooperation if it could possibly work. I would need to look at all of their files. Um, they would need to be completely open with me and introduce me to other members of the family. And necessarily, I've had to ask some pretty difficult questions of them in relation to uh, their responses and sometimes lack of responses to the disappearance of Lynn. And one of the uh, really distressing parts of this this whole story is um, you see how police, through either incompetence or corruption or both in the 1980s, so badly let this woman down um, and her colleagues, you hear them expressing their... Um, distress and regret at not acting sooner in raising the alarm. And you also hear from Lynn's family, um, her siblings, about why they didn't go to police and say, it's so out of character for her to just disappear. Um, We think she's been murdered. They didn't do that. They believed, Chris, that, that she had gone away. And so when you're asking questions like that, you're really potentially asking them you know, to, to express their regrets. And, 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 and you know, in, in the current affairs TV, it's that moment, I guess they call it the money shot, where the person in the, in the, in the uh, frame starts crying. I didn't want to, and I don't think I did um, achieve that. Um, I just wanted them to hear me, hopefully in a measured and sensitive way, ask them, you know, why they did and didn't do certain things. And because we had such a good relationship before we started asking those tougher questions, um, I think they felt that they could be, you know, very authentic in in answering them. And, And I completely understand why certain things happened and didn't happen. And, um... And we remain, you know, uh, on a, in a very trusting professional relationship. Um, yeah, they tell you in journalism 
to not get too close to your subjects. Um, I failed in this regard horribly. Um, but I actually think it, it strengthens the podcast. I'm not a robot. You're not a robot. You know, and this family, I felt their pain. I still feel their pain and their frustration, especially with the wait um, for whether the coroner is going to reopen their case. Um, and they, Mark and Adam James are two of the most gracious people that I've ever met. Um, they were available to me any time. They answered really hard questions, particularly for Adam going back over his sexual abuse. Um, he, Mark James wrote me a really lovely email after I sent him an advance copy of the book. And to me, and I know this sounds cliche, but I'm sincere when I say it, if, it's, if he thinks I've done a good job, that's my win. You know, and th- this story has won awards, which I'm very proud of, but to get an email from him saying, you know, we knew how much you put in, but it wasn't until reading the book how much it took from you. Um, and he said, and I'll never forget it, he wrote, we are so grateful for and to you, and I burst into tears. Um, but I just, yeah, I do feel really close to the family and I do feel like I have a responsibility to them now to see this through and to hopefully help get them some answers. And another beautiful thing Mark did, he called me today because I've got an article in The Good Weekend today and it expressed my frustration that I haven't been able to get them answers yet. Um, And he called and he said, oh, I just wanted to, I'm just calling, it was this morning before I came into the first session, just wanted to say, I know you're busy, but um, don't, don't feel bad. You've created momentum. You know, you've done more for us than anyone has. And so he's just, these are just such good people. Um, and to drag them through hell, which I have in telling their stories, yeah, I just... I'm a bit lost for words, actually. And so I've grown really close to them and also the sexual abuse survivors who I think Trace has also given them a voice, um, which they mightn't otherwise have had. And I'm, I've been floored by their compassion. These are kids that were brutally raped and abused as children... Um, and shown and shown very little compa- compassion as children to then give me what they've given me in terms of their honesty and their bravery to help a family that they don't even know. Like I didn't tell victims of O'Keefe or Bongiorno um, what, why I was interviewing them. I've, I kept, um, I quarantined my three lines of investigation as to not taint their accounts, so I didn't want them telling me what they thought I wanted to hear. So for these men to be giving up so much and to be picking away at scars um, to help a family that was still they didn't know, I just I just think that's incredible. So yeah, I, I think the men and the survivors and the family, you know, are the the real the true heroes in Trace. Yeah. <clears throat> I think Rachel, your your answer, your honest answer there is um, also underlines why these podcasts, professionally done, are so successful, why they touch and reach so many people. Um, Headley, you're uh, mechanically you're recording each episode um, every week. So, what has been occurring um, with the release of uh, each episode is that members of the public are coming forward to you with fresh material. And that, that some of that is being used in the progressive episodes, which is a fascinating idea that a podcast could almost be semi-live or an organic thing, if you like. Tell me both, both about, um, I mean, certainly with you, Hadley, the community or your listeners appear to be accomplices 
in on this along this journey with you. They're coming along with you. Yeah, this this is I think um, one of the reasons why uh, the level of engagement's been so strong. Um, and it wasn't designed this way. I got to um, um, mid-May, having written scripts uh, for about two and a half, maybe three episodes, and I thought we might do a total of nine, eight or nine. And I thought, oh, it's taking taking um, a while. And the longer, you know, I push out the sort of launch date, um, the slower I'll probably go. <laughs> so I just thought, let's hit the button and and start this. And I'll be able to just, you know, with this little buffer I've got, um, um, I'll be okay. I'll be able to run ahead of the wave. Um, and because I'd already done, you know, many dozens and dozens of hours of, 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 um, of interviews that, that were um, on sound files and, and ready to roll. And not cut up, but they were there. And, uh, and so we started. And then as a result of the revelations in the first episode and the um, the impact that had on on number of listeners northern beaches um, former students of Cromer high in particular uh, people started coming out of the woodwork and talking to us about um, this extraordinary culture of, of um, sexual assault um, high school teachers at Cromer um, not just Chris and Paul Dawson who's also accused but um, many other teachers preying on on schoolgirls and and then at other nearby schools as well and so the, the, it led to episode 2 having to be significantly re, rewritten to incorporate this new evidence and material and then that brought out more people who came forward for episode 3 and then episode 4 went off on another tangent as a result and so as a result I was suddenly faced with a situation where this minimal <laughs> pre-writing I'd done I was Kind of just um, you know putting it to one side and starting fresh, so that episode twelve, which is due out next Thursday, um, I actually haven't written any of it, you know, and <laughs> and it's going to be written um, partly tomorrow. But my wife's just told me I've got to go to a dinner party tomorrow night, so I'm like, um, wondering how that's going to be possible. So, um, but but I think that this model, while it's really high risk, and you know you're you're um, working tremendously long hours to, to, to pull it off. If you can pull it off in terms of the, the current um, um, flavour that, that is injected into the podcast, it really does, for the listeners, make them feel that they don't know what's going to happen next because I don't know what's happening next. <laughs> um, but you've got to be careful too. You've got to be able to filter some of the... Um, uh, well, all of the the information you get to determine where are you know the where are the jewels, and then be careful to corroborate what you're told and back it up so that you know you don't end up um, broadcasting just gossip. Um, so it's um, it's yeah, it's been a revelation for me, and I think that in future um, I'll ask for a few more people to help me, but I would <laughs> like to <laughs> like to stick with that model of. Of, of having an idea of the framework, like there is a linear uh, structure to the story in terms of telling it from 982 going forward, but, um, but also having the ability in each episode as you're dealing with events in crucial years, having the ability to drop in um, contemporary current um, pieces of audio 
um, that uh, will, will cause the, the listeners to realise, hang on, I, I, I just heard that yesterday and it's in the podcast tonight, like this is, this is live. It does add an enormous amount of pressure to the production process. Um, I gave many people within Radio National heart attacks, I think, because we were recutting... Um, not only did we have to corroborate the leads that were coming in um, fast and furiously, but we'd have to re-script, re-voice, sometimes do re-interview, um, re-edit. I remember the night before episode four dropped, so we were dropping them on a Wednesday morning. Um, I'd given Victoria Police a deadline of 5pm Tuesday to confirm or deny the DNA bungle. Didn't hear anything, got some takeaway for dinner. Um, thought, oh, this is going to be easier than I thought, famous last words. And then Mark calls and said, oh, they've, I've, they've just been on my doorstep and they've told me about the, um, the error with the DNA. So I had to call Marty Peralta, who's the sound genius that mixed Trace, and said, mm, Marty, I'm going to need to just start again. And he was just about to upload it to iTunes, so he undid all the back half, re-scripted, re-voiced in the morning. I think we all got about two hours sleep that night. Um, but then we could give you a much fresher um, look at what was happening within Victoria Police. Victoria Police kind of went into damage control. Um, but I think the... I was talking before about community engagement. I, I was told to manage my expectations because podcasts can have a very long tail. So the person who's holding the missing puzzle piece in Melbourne or Bundaberg might not hear Trace until July next year. Um, but the response exceeded even my wildest expectations. And so I'd be putting out specific calls for Jeanette Hodson, for example, who was the woman who was driving the car that the supposed killer, um, nearly, she nearly crashed into him. And I went one better because someone, called in, uh, someone emailed me and said, oh, my mum was walking past the bookshop that day and he ran in front of her. I was like, holy shit, this is, you know... Yeah, I'm still staggered by that. Um, two, two callers into John Fain's program after I went... I was doing weekly chats um, with him. Uh, two callers to that made episode 2.5. Yeah, so it was quite remarkable. And I do think um, I was a little bit naive in terms of um, how grateful Victoria Police would be to me because um, I very greenly went in and said, oh, this is, you know, when I was trying to sell Trace to them and their involvement... You, you know, you might get 100 emails about a white car. And one of the detectives said, yeah, but then I have to follow up 100 emails about a white car. So that... And, of course, they're under-resourced. They've got a bigger fish to fry. I get it. Um, but it was that that most starkly made me realise my idea of how helpful I was being probably wasn't shared by them. Um, that's an interesting point. I mean, Headley, you were summoned... Uh, to the office of the New South Wales Police Commissioner um, a week or so ago. What happened? Well, I wouldn't say I was summoned, um, but um, I did have a meeting with, uh, with the Police Commissioner uh, in Sydney and uh, that followed um, several episodes where um, the police and their um, lack of action in the early years and then the... Um, uh, concerns of a number of witnesses who I had spoken to that the police still weren't taking it as seriously as they should were being broadcast. And it was interesting because at the start of the year, back in January, I had um, approached New South Wales Police um, and the Commissioner's Office, explained what I was um, seeking to do. Um, 
I, I asked for interviews with some of the key officers who were involved in this case. And, um, and I also expressed the view that this case could uncover leads because members of the public, people who would listen to it, might be more likely to call me than Crime Stoppers. You know, people just... Um, I know it's a tough call, call a cop or call a journo, <laughs> but I thought that they might call me first. And I didn't get any, um, any cooperation whatsoever. I was completely um, shut down, and that was fine. I just went off and did what I needed to do um, until the police realised that in the public arena, well, this is my view of what they realised, that it was going really badly for them. You know, people were saying, hang on a minute, what's going on? There was this vacuum. The cops weren't talking about work they had done and witnesses who were exposed to some of the work they had done weren't that impressed with it. So it was looking for the police like a PR disaster and I think very sensibly um, and necessarily uh, the Commissioner Mick Fuller decided that um, he needed to um, basically accept that there'd been some misunderstandings um, on their part and he wanted to explain the work that they had done and get back onto a footing where we could be at least talking. And I thought, well, that was great because I didn't need at that point anything from the police but I felt that there was material that I'd been able to um, uncover, material that had been sent to me, material that I'd checked out, that I'd found, that I wasn't comfortable at that point putting in a podcast, but I thought they needed for their homicide investigation that was still ongoing. So there was a channel opened and we had that meeting and uh, it, went, it went very well. And soon afterwards, uh, he was on um, uh, Macquarie Radio's 2GB talking to Ben Fordham and he issued a very public apology to Lynn Dawson's family for how the police had dropped... Uh, uh, well, had basically failed that family in their investigation of Lynn Dawson's probable murder in the early years in particular. And I thought that was very good of him to do that and he acknowledged that that uh, there had been these um, um, shortcomings in, in the management of it and in their engagement with, with me. And, um, and now I, I, I believe that there is a constructive path forward. It highlighted though, and Mick Fuller has talked about this, the challenge for police in this era of podcast journalism um, investigating cold cases. Um, and in my view, cold case is a cold case because it's been really hard to solve. So police, in just about every example, should be engaging very um, actively with journalism to help solve those cases. And that's, I think, now um, dawning on um, commissioners and hopefully in future they will be a lot more responsive um, from now on. Hopefully Queensland can have a chat to Victoria. Yeah, but <laughs> the one thing um, you mentioned the, the all-nighter you pulled, um, well as a result of that uh, apology that, that Mick Fuller issued to the family on radio, live radio, that came at about 4.30pm and you know I was feeling really smug that afternoon because I'd <laughs> finally finished the episode. It was, you know, we, we were only a short. Uh, we, we only had probably had 15 minutes before we were going to press, you know, send, and it would be uploaded. And I thought, oh my, no, no. <laughs> I wanted. I was glad that he said it, but it meant racing over to my friend um, Slade Gibson's house, um, and he's become one of my best friends because he's the brilliant guy who's behind all of the audio, the music, the mixing, everything for for the teacher's pet production. Um, and I love saying, 
he is a rock star because he is. He used to be the guitarist for Savage Garden. <laughs> so he's, he's unreal. And I rang him up and I said, mate, we're going to have to redo part of this episode. The commissioner said this. And he's like, oh, man, I'm doing a session. I've got guys. I'm, you know, like he, was, he had literally had guys in his studio. He's teaching them. Um, well, he guitar. had a life. Yeah, yeah. Huh. He, he has all these other jobs. He, you know, this for him, he'd never done a podcast series before. And so when, he, when I leave his studio, he, he's trying to you know, school people in music. And, and I said, well, can't can you sort of you know, end the session quickly and <laughs> let me come in and we'll re-record this? And he did and, and it got in and the episode came out very late and I was getting emails and text messages from, from people saying, where is it, where is it, where is it, we're waiting. <laughs> um, two quick points on that. I, I agree with you. Silence breeds suspicion and that's what I tried to say to the cops and I said, it looks incredibly suspicious that you're not answering questions. It looks more and more like a conspiracy with the Catholic Church and it might not be. But the, the fact that you're not answering questions, people, that's what people are going to think. But these institutions are so entrenched in their old cultures and, and keeping things internally and saying that, well, it's an active investigation, to which I said, well, if so, then why did you tell me that you couldn't answer my questions because you'd need to put someone on a box and look through the box to answer my questions, you know? Um, so I, I do think there, there does need to... I, look, I respect... I, I have the utmost respect for Victoria Police... I respect that they need to be um, careful with their investigations, but I think there needs to be a middle ground here. Um, and my second point was we audiences love the evolution and being part, part of an evolving podcast um, and love feeling like they're participants and they're coming along with us and when we discover leads, they do. Um, but one thing I've really noticed, which you might have to look forward to, it mightn't have affected you yet, is the, the turn in some listeners when they love being part of it when it's happening, but when it means waiting. Um, and I explain this in the book, or they don't like it. So I went from being, you know, hailed as an, an amazing investigative journalist and good on you for, you know, um, sticking up for the James family to, mm, um, what, was the, what was my favourite one? Um, as a podcast, this is one that's been left, unf left half-finished and given all the media attention at the beginning, I would have thought that she would have, you know, given it some kind of closure. It's like, well, I, c I can't invent an ending and I'm not going to. And so people going, oh, where's the next episode? Um, you know, don't hold your breath, sheesh. And I'm like, I just felt like screaming at them, you know, this is real life and life is messy and life means waiting. So you imagine how the James brothers feel if you're annoyed, you know, so you might have that to look forward to. I'm only going to read the good reviews. Yeah. <laughs> but that's a good point. Is there pressure um, uh, with fingers crossed to achieve a, a result as in a, some form of resolution of this narrative? Yeah, look, I think uh, there is and that was uh, my expectation and my friend... Um, Rebecca Hazel um, has come up from Sydney today and I met Rebecca early in the piece in this investigation. We had um, a lovely lunch at uh, that restaurant um, Icebergs in Sydney and uh, uh, I met Rebecca because Rebecca's written you know, um, amazing story, um, a manuscript, um, hopefully it'll be published as a book soon, on um, her own experiences with Joanne Curtis who is the schoolgirl in this, this, this case and uh, when we met, I um, talked to her about what I was seeking to achieve, which was sufficient evidence to cause the DPP 
to make the decision that two coroners said should have been made, which, which was, you know, the, the, the prosecution for murder of, of Chris Dawson. And, and so that was the objective at the outset um, and not hopefully in a way that resembles vigilantism but, but relying on substance and evidence, um, new leads as well, not public pressure but on material that um, wasn't known to the coroners, wasn't known to the DPP when they made the decisions and I'm, I'm hopeful that as a result of new evidence and new witnesses who have come forward in this process, that can be achieved. If it's not achieved, then, um, well, you know, we don't give up. Um, when we get to what might be, cons um, might be uh, at least temporarily um, put out as the last episode, it, I don't want to say it's the last episode. I want to say this is... This is the last episode for a while, and now we're going to take a break and do some more um, digging. And it might be some digging. Um, and, <laughs> well, no, it might be. I mean, yeah. It, it's, um, you know, it's, it's certainly open to do that. And um, I think that this doesn't end, you know, in a few weeks. This, this will continue. Um, of course, if there is an affirmative decision to prosecute, it's subjudice. And we all have to respect that and and not um, breach you know rules of contempt of court. But for for the foreseeable future, this is all I want to keep keep investigating. Um, yeah, I'm incredibly proud of what Trace has achieved in in a legal sense. Um, the coroner is currently deciding whether to reopen the case on the basis of new facts and circumstances. And a lot of my work is now in affidavits that's before the court, which is the most I think humbling thing that's happened to me as a journalist. Um, just to, I mean, even one of those points alone, I feel that would get it over the line for a new inquest, but I'm incredibly biased, I admit that, and I'm, I'm not seeking to interfere in a court's decision. Um, but the hold-up at the moment, for those of you who don't know, is that the coroner initially said, I'm not sure whether I can be the one to decide that, because it was this decision was made under an old coroner's act, at which point the Supreme Court... Uh, it was its job to decide whether to hold new inquests. So this, this has been going on now since last July about who, where the jurisdiction falls. And recently, um, amazingly, the Victorian Attorney-General has, has introduced a law into Parliament to announce just that, that yes, the cor it is your job, coroner, to be able to reopen historical inquests. So I'm got everything crossed that in the next couple of months um, we'll hear her decision on that. But but to to be able to give those boys that um, that will be the big win of Trace, I think. Um, and then hopefully people within the Catholic Church and Victorian Police Force will have to answer questions that they're not answering for me. Hadley, are you hopeful mm. that you may find Lynn? Yeah, I, I am. Um, I've always um, been of the view that she is buried on that block at Bayview, on the acreage of land that she and her husband built their house on in the late 70s. And um, I think that uh, the, the areas of suspicion need to be properly ex excavated. They haven't been. They've been very piecemeal, in my view, um, um, and limited digging there. Um, I think that the suspicion of that area being uh, the resting place for Lynn 
um, is driven by a few factors. One of them, and this was um, one of the early breakthroughs in this series, it came from a magistrate, serving magistrate called Jeff Linden. Um, he sits in the Lismore Court in northern New South Wales. And um, he told me of this extraordinary conversation he had with the owners of the property. Um, and they they were the owners in um, the late 80s, several years after Lynn Dawson had disappeared and Chris had sold up and moved to Queensland with um, his student lover, no longer a student, of course. He'd, um, then by then his wife and the stepmother to his children. And Jeff Linden described this this face-to-face conversation with the owner, Neville Johnston. And uh, Neville Johnston was doing all of this landscaping work on the block and uh, he... Um, he was just chatting about you know, this um, unrelated legal work that Jeff would do for him as a Northern Beaches solicitor. And Jeff noticed where he lived and said, oh, I know that, uh, that place. I used to play football with Chris and I knew Lynn. Uh, I, don't, um, I don't believe that she would have just walked out, though. Um, you know, it was very suspicious. And um, Mr Johnston, you know, according to Jeff's account, and he describes this so... Um, so well and naturally, um, he said that Mr Johnston just went white and just said, well, he was just up here the other day, that Chris Dawson. I didn't know him from a bar of soap. He came uninvited. He came up and he asked me, where are you digging? And this was at a time when Chris Dawson was not under suspicion for a suspected murder because there was no murder investigation. Lynn was just regarded as a runaway wife. And... Um, and Jeff said that that comment had stuck with him for the past 30 years. However, he hadn't actually spoken about it to his own colleagues who were magistrates running those two inquests in 2001 and 2003. And it was just this amazing thing to hear a serving magistrate talk about how he was shaken by that. And he said, Mr Johnston was shaken and... And I've since had follow-up interviews with him. I went to Lismore and spoke to him and, and, uh, and we've gone through a lot of documents and it's caused him to be very concerned about that property as the likely resting place. Why does Chris Dawson, before he became a suspect for murder, why did he keep going back from Queensland when he would visit the Northern Beaches, but he kept going back to that? Now, I know when we leave a house that we've perhaps had you know, happy times in, it's natural to drive by, but I don't think it's normal to go by repeatedly and go up onto the block and want to talk to the owners about their landscaping work, not so much the house um, or any renovations inside, more about landscaping, and then to ask, where are you digging? Like, it's such an odd question. And he didn't have a lot of time um, in terms of body disposal. And, you know, I say these... I make these statements as if Chris Dawson has done this. And I know that that is an unusual way for me to um, uh, characterise it, given that he hasn't been tried for murder. Um, There is no murder conviction because there's been no prosecution. He's in this awful situation where he denies any wrongdoing. He says he's done nothing wrong. But two coroners who have studied all of the evidence say he did this and should be prosecuted, but the DPP won't. So, um, yeah, I think that block is is the... the target area, and I'd, I'd like to inspect it really closely. Um, just quickly and finally before we go to questions, um, we're, we're told as journalists always that we are not the story, 
We are not part of the story. But um, by, by nature of podcasting and your podcast, you are a character or a person actively involved with the story. So have you felt as journalists vulnerable um, doing these podcasts? Um, I, I do think it's important to keep yourself out of it. Um, a lot of my observations and insights into this case were stripped out, so I actually found it quite cathartic writing the book because I could put a lot of them back in, but stripped out for reading, reasons for the medium, just for time, and if, so we'd have clear narrative flags. And my producers were very much, you know, you've got to keep... My, they flattened out my voice because the grabs around them were so fruity that I didn't need to be that animated. Um, Marty Peralta used to laugh that it, he used to call me Rach Noir instead of Rach Brown and that's the, the tone that they wanted to keep me flat and so I very much stayed out of it as a character and then I think you only really start to see me kind of coming into it in episode four when someone gives me a piece of DNA material um, that, that could possibly solve this thing and I was just beside myself. I shouldn't have been driving. Um, and that, I think then it starts, that starts to shine through. So I think it was all the more powerful because you, you do really feel like you're coming along with me. Um, but in terms of vulnerability, yes, because of what was given to me that I had to um, look after, that I'm still looking after because Victoria Police won't take it, um, that made me feel quite vulnerable. And... Uh, not as much as probably you felt with recent cases and, and threats, personal threats, because given the it was so long ago, but there are various elements of it that have made me feel a little bit insecure. Yeah. Yeah, man, I um, wrote the first script um, probably half a dozen times, the first episode script, and uh, uh, really struggled with the, the right balance because, as you say... Um, we really want to avoid the personal pronoun, you know, in in print journalism, unless we're writing a very personal column. And um, but necessarily, when you're interviewing so many people and you're narrating and you're trying to lead listeners on this um, on this investigation that is going to go for some time, you need to form a relationship, and they need to understand a little bit about um, your motivations and 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 why you're involved in this and and so I think it's it's a balancing act and and uh, luckily I've got very sensible um, people around me my wife um, <laughs> who who will give me advice about um, you know toning it down or taking it up a bit and Slade Gibson um, in the studio he's great he'll say mate I just cut all that you're just gibbering you know <laughs> and I'll say great mate that's unreal <laughs> thank you so, yeah, it's trial and error. But the bottom line for me is that there isn't enough time in between episodes to be finessing and, you know, um, having committees over this. It's, you know, it's right up to the hammer. And, uh, uh, we're, you know, we're making... We're doing our very best, and I don't think we've made any um, factual errors. Um, but that's always, you know, concerning me that because of the pace of it... Um, the risks increase, and you know we don't have fact checkers. I'm I'm the fact checker. Um, Slade's the, um, you know, the guy who who's hearing it and saying, yeah, I think we can dump you there and and maybe put a bit of bass in your voice here because you sound terrible. You know, <laughs> these are all the tricks that you you can pull off in the studio that I didn't know about. Terrific. Now 
we've got a roving mic, I understand. So if there are questions, um, please feel free to ask. Thank you. Um, my question relates to what you were just talking about in regards to fact-checking, and obviously that would play an important part um, with the rise of citizen journalism, if you want to call it that. Um, have you had to deal with quite a lot of concern when it comes to defamation or potential defamation? You can't defame a dead person, and so a lot of the people in my podcast had passed away. Um, but we did do a lot of fact-checking. We had an incredible fact-checker, Emma Lancaster, who I worked with very closely, so as well as everything that I was doing, um, that was religiously fact-checked. And then, of course, we'd have to corroborate the new stuff coming in. So we triaged, um, separated the armchair detective theories from stuff that could be real leads. I'd go out, interview them, and then try to fact-check that as much as I possibly could. And if I couldn't get it corroborated, it wouldn't go in trace. Um, and also, I worked with an incredible lawyer, Grant McAvaney, um, to know how he could push the envelope but do it safely. Um, and that went to things like, how can we record people? We were wondering about recording the real estate agent. Um, and you can, in Victoria, you can record a conversation secretly, um, but not broadcast it. And the only way we could have been able to broadcast it is if someone else could have feas feasibly heard it. So if Headley and I were having a conversation at, in the back room of a pub, but there was no one else there, then I couldn't record it. So I learned a lot through, you know, the various mechanisms I couldn't, couldn't use through that. Yeah, defamation risk uh, in our case um, is always present um, because the, uh, the suspect is very much alive, as is his brother, and they've been accused of really serious offences, in Chris's case of murder, in Paul's case of um, um, sexual... of preying, preying on underage girls. And I should, again, stress they both strenuously deny all of those um, accusations. Um, John Paul Cashin has been uh, our solicitor in this and I reached out to him months before the first episode, sent to him a great deal of documentary material. Um, he's a very experienced defamation specialist. Uh, I sent to him the, um, the transcripts of evidence from the coronial proceedings, uh, relevant witness statements. I, gave, uh, I produced a very lengthy... Um, briefing note, an outline of what I was proposing to do and said that I thought we had all of these defences from qualified privilege through public interest and so on. And um, he came back and uh, uh, he said, well, look, I'm across it all. Let's, um, let's sort of work out where we go as we get the episodes. And with each episode, um, um, and I give those to him uh, in chapters, sometimes hours before release, but mostly a day to two days before release. He goes through them very carefully and um, usually his ruling is top of low risk. They have these different ratings. And we haven't had one legal letter from any member of the um, uh, the family that's been most under under scrutiny. The only legal letter we've had, which is a recent one, relates to a photograph that was published of Chris and Paul Dawson with a, a female model. And the caption clearly states that the woman's a model, but um, there's concern uh, expressed by her solicitors that uh, she has been um, depicted as if she's part of some um, murder plot, which seems to me a bit far-fetched, but um, we'll deal with that and hopefully she won't suffer any ongoing distress from it. That's been the only 
legal um, comeback so far, touch wood. I honestly believe that Trace and um, the teacher's pet are examples of, um, of um, as you said earlier, uh, the future of long-form investigative journalism, and it may very well be the podcast. So it's been a terrific discussion. Please thank Rachel and Headley. Thank you. You've been listening to the Walkley Talks podcast. If you dig it, sign up for our newsletter at walkleys.com slash subscribe for all our announcements, stories and updates. If you like this episode, follow and rate us on your favourite podcast app. This podcast was produced by Miles Holbrook-Walk for the Walkley Foundation at the 2SER Studios in Sydney, Australia, and supported by Bond University. Catch you next time.